to Today on Broadway for Monday, April 22nd, 2019. I'm Broadway World's Matt Tamanini. And I am Broadway star's James Marino. James, we promised a crap ton of stuff in the Broadway radio feed over the weekend. And boy, did we deliver a crap ton of stuff. Uh, We had four episodes come out between Friday evening and Sunday. I think it was late morning because you guys recorded a little early, I think, because of the Easter holiday. Uh, So we had four episodes come out. It started with uh, my latest Tell Me More episode. I spoke with Zoe Winters, one of the four stars of the Public Theater's White Noise. Uh, That is currently running for about three more weeks downtown at the Public Theater. Great conversation. We tried really hard. They, They wanted us to not spoil things in this. So we speak a lot in vagaries, but if you've seen the show, it is um, a really twisty, turny script, as you can imagine with Susan Laurie Parks. But uh, so, but, but that's why we didn't talk about a lot of the specifics of what happened. So uh, if it's a little vague, that's why. Then on Saturday morning, Jan Simpson spoke with playwright Thaddeus Phillips, who wrote 17 Border Crossings. It's currently playing at the New York Theater Workshop. Then on Saturday evening, I had another tell me more because we save all these things for the weekends. I spoke with uh, a handful of folks, uh, my friend Aaron J. Albano from the tour of Hamilton, Rebecca Robbins currently playing Paulette in Legally Blonde at the Vero Beach Theater, uh, the Riverside Theater, and uh, Alan Cornell, who's the uh, producing artistic director and CEO down there. I talked with them about what it takes for an actor to go out of town to work. Aaron is obviously on the road for a year with Hamilton. Uh, Rebecca is a Philadelphia-based actor because um, the Walnut Street Theater, the U.S.'s oldest, longest-running theater, um, has a partnership with Riverside Theater where every late spring into summer they do a joint production. It's Legally Blonde this year. But what's interesting is is the Riverside Theater – just opened their own hotel that they are going to use for uh, all of their artists. About 95 to 100% of all of the artists for their shows are from out of town. So they need some place to house them per equity contracts and all that other stuff and just being good artistic citizens. Uh, so they just built their own hotel. or I don't know if they built it or renovated or bought it or whatever, but um, so really cool conversations there. And then James, you, Peter and Michael had a new this week on Broadway on Sunday. And I got to tell you, I did not expect one Michael Portantier to love Hades town as much as he did. Sure. Uh, you know, Hades town is uh, seemingly a runaway hit. Uh, it's, it's covering, well, all three of us liked it. I actually, uh, saw Jenna Tessa Fox at Hades Town. She sat right in front of me and I told her, you know, scooch down a little because you're blocking my view. Really? You're but really going to make a short joke? Really? I, That's not I was cool, not going to make a short joke. I don't know mm-hmm. what you're saying. Mm-hmm. But, so, uh, and Jenna enjoyed it as well. Uh, so we're four for four. I'm going to poll some of the other folks in our Broadway uni- uh, radio five. universe. Five for five. Count me. Five, five for five. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I think that Hades town is, uh, is a hit. A hit, a hit, a palpable hit. Exactly. So, uh, uh, the interesting thing about Riverside building that hotel, it was a very fascinating uh, discussion that you had there on Tell Me More. Uh, I have to really look at that because I'm a firm believer in businesses doing, you know, not spreading their focus. But I can understand why a theater would want to manage or control their costs there on their artist housing. 
So that is uh, a big line item. So that's interesting. And um, White Noise and Zoe Winters, you might have been directed not to uh, spill a lot of... uh, the the details but we've spilled a lot of the details over two weeks on white noise on this week on broadway uh all four of us have reviewed it and in quite quite detail and still it's a three-hour show so uh it's hard to spill all the uh details all right so uh i guess we ought to get into our first uh story of the day which is the reviews are in for gary a sequel to titus andronicus yeah james this one officially opened finally 10 days later than originally planned at the booth theater because of all of the cast and changes uh, we'll talk about here in a second this play is written by taylor mack and is directed by george c wolf it features original music by danny elfman movement by bill Irwin, uh, and it stars as it always was going to Nathan Lane in the title role of Gary. However, as you might remember, Christine Nielsen was originally scheduled to play Carol and one uh, Andrea Martin was going to play Janice. Well, because of an injury, Andrea Martin had to bow out of the show. So Nielsen moved from playing Carol to play Janice. And then they brought in just some nobody who has no experience, Tony winner, Julie White, to play Carol. That caused some delays in the first preview performances. And then eventually they pushed back the opening night by 10 days. Now, reading these reviews, James, I don't think that that change really impacted any of the reviews. What I think impacted the reviews, most of all, is that it is one of the nuttiest concepts for a play that I have ever seen. Let's start with Jesse Green from the New York Times, who made the show a critic's pick because, like, Three quarters of every show now is a critic's pick, but uh, he did seem to really like it. He said, quote, welcome to the world of Gary, a sequel to Titus Andronicus, where carnage and camp coexist, if not exactly in peace, then in a constructive dialect or dialectic. Sorry, I can't speak on Sundays. Um, Taylor Mack's new play, which opened on Sunday at the Booth Theater in a production starring Nathan Lane, is the unlikeliest bird to land on Broadway in many a year. Much like Mr. Mack himself at the end of a 24-decade history of popular music, his epic revision of American culture, it is fabulous and bedraggled, a defiant and beautiful mess. Go, he goes on to talk about the show a little bit more. And then uh, towards the end, he wraps up by saying, quote, for me, at least the most convincing and powerful moments came when the performances aligned with the gravity of the premise. Gary's speech about the power of art to create new realities was one such movement for Mr. Lane. You could feel the hope in the hyperbole he spoke of. Now, I do want to mention one thing that for whatever reason, Green and the New York Times decided to. Um, gender Taylor Mac as a he with he and him uh, and himself pronouns. Uh, Mac does use um, Judy as his personal pronoun with a, you know, there's some thinking and, and, you know, a little bit of activism going on with a lowercase Judy as, as Max pronoun. But I did want to mention that just so we're all on the same page there. Um, Robert Hoffler from the rap actually really seemed to like this as bad as much as anybody did. Uh, Hoffler wrote quote, Mac borrows lightly from waiting for Godot or Godot, but unlike Samuel Beckett, Mac doesn't indulge in repetition to the point of tedium. Lane has played this kind of absurdist character before here. He even uses Harpo Marx's horn to goose a laugh yet despite all the gags this clown turned worker turned fool is ultimately very poignant in his quest to save the world meanwhile the usually 
flighty Nielsen has even been more or has never been comic has never been more comically stolid. Watching Lane's gnat of a character pick away at her filth smeared carcass is theater heaven as viewed from the sewer. Now, here, James, is where it starts to get a little more dicey. Uh, my favorite uh, critic of all, Sarah Holdren from Vulture, said, quote, uh, speaking of, of playwright Mac, quote, characteristically, the, quote, proudly maximalist playwright has a lot cooking in Gary, not omitting the rapist stuffed meat pies that accompany the climax of Shakespeare's gory tragedy. The play wants to be a breathless farce, a political gut punch, a meditation on our penchant for violence and our reverence of for classical drama, a vigorous mashup of high and lowbrow and a defiant art forward beacon of hope. And it feels like some of these things some of the time, but despite, or perhaps because of the fact that George C. Wolf's production is pitched pretty much unrelentingly at 11, Gary isn't as funny or as biting as it could be like the big Rube Goldberg machine that looms over Santo Costa's appropriately garish corpse strewn set. The plays working parts while visible aren't always activated. Uh, two more quick short ones here for you, James. Marilyn Stasio from Variety said, quote, there's no shortage of art and craft in this offbeat show, but there's also a limit to how much goofiness a comedy can support. And Mac may have gone over his limit. The jokes start to feel lame and the crude burlesque routines seem a bit cruel. This is some this is what happens to clowns when they overreach into a pratfall. Maybe so. In which case, Mac might do a little bloodletting on this dramatic corpse. And finally, Joe, Joe Domenowitz from the New York Post probably hated it as much as anybody did. He wrote, quote, all three stars get credit for taking on an out there challenge, even if they resort to their go to tricks. Lane bellows as Gary. Nielsen doubles down on her signature signature double takes as Janice and White works her trusty, frantic and plaintive reflexes as Carol. They're sometimes funny, but not enough. It's been said that comedy is tragedy plus time. Gary, a comedy, alas, is just tragic. Now, this makes me think, James, of a um, a tweet that I saw. Um, I'm going to make sure I get this right. Um, from a from a New York critic uh, th- that I know, Jose Solis, and um, I don't. I'm scrolling here real quick. Um, but anyway, he basically, in response to looking at um, seeing Hillary and Clinton, he oh, basically yeah, – I saw that tweet. Did you see it? And I I'm saw the one through. about the uh, white privilege uh, right in a uh, comedy. Uh, no. Yeah, this is a little different, uh, although on the uh, white privilege side of things, um, Jose said, quote, to all the little white boys out there afraid that their dreams of becoming a successful writer might not come true. Let Hillary and Clinton prove to you that one day your fanfic, too, can be on Broadway. Uh, and then that led to a discussion with a lot of other critics that uh, I, I I follow, uh, Nicole Saratori and, uh, and I think Elizabeth Vincitelli as well talking about that. There's a lot of the new plays this season don't feel like finished products. And based on a lot of the reviews here, whether it's Hillary or Clinton, Hillary and Clinton or this, it feels like they could have used, um, another out of town tryout or an out of town tryout at all with, in the case of Gary, uh, and just from refining while there's a lot good there, it's like, they're not actually being, readied appropriately before they come to the Broadway stage. Hmm. That's a whole long discussion. I wonder. Uh, yeah. 
That's a, that's you, you threw a bomb in at the end there. Making me I'm sorry. Think, making me think I, like this. It's not in the script. As I was just reading through them, it made me think yeah. of Jose's tweet. Um, but I mean, I, I, you, you wonder what that is. If it has anything to do with it being white men, I, I don't know. Um, but I do think it has to do with a lot of things. I mean, playwrights that, that are, are known quantities, shows that are able to have stars attached so they can get to Broadway and have a chance to make money, even if they aren't necessarily ready. It, it's, a, it's a long discussion, and I don't know that we have the answer or can do that in yeah. a short amount of time. But um, just something to, to ruminate on, and maybe after the season's over – um, we can maybe dive into it a little bit more. There's actually another topic that I'm going to suggest that about later in the show. All right. So everybody, uh, this July, let's meet up at Martha's Vineyard and discuss white privilege. <laughs> okay. I've never been to uh, Martha's Vineyard, but yeah. <laughs> All right. What's up in this this week's theatrical schedule? All righty, James. We are in the thick of it now. There are four Broadway openings between now and Thursday's eligibility deadline, and we have three awards announcing their nominees between Tuesday and Friday. First up, tonight, the roundabout revival of Arthur Miller's Of All My Sons officially opens, led by Annette Benning and Tracy Letts. The show is directed by Jack O'Brien and also features Benjamin Walker, uh, Francesca Carpanini, Hampton Fluker, Jenny Barber, Michael Hayden, and more. The revival is currently on sale at the American Airlines Theater through June 23rd. James, I wasn't in town when this show began previews, but I've heard great things about this revival, so I'm uh, excited to, to read the reviews of this one, especially because it looks like it has an actual set unlike a lot of the revivals we've seen from like evo van hova and and folks like that from uh, a lot of the arthur miller stuff lately so uh super interesting there then on tuesday morning at 11 a.m the outer critic circle will announce their 69th annual award nominees with the help of julie halston and michael yuri the nominations will come from the algonquin hotel and can be live streamed exclusively on broadway world Later on Tuesday, the new Broadway musical uh, adaptation of Tootsie will open at the Marquee Theater, featuring Santino Fontana, Lily Cooper, Sarah Stiles, John Bailman, Andy Gratolution, I think. I don't know. He's he's hilarious, though. <laughs> Julie Halston, making it a very busy day for her. Michael McGraw, Reg Rogers, and more. Tootsie features a score by David Yazbek and a book by Robert Horn. Scott Ellis directs while Dennis Jones choreographs. Um, I've seen this one, James. I don't believe you've seen it yet, have you? Uh, coming up this week. Okay. Um, we've both kind of made our theory, our feelings known about Tootsie in the general sense. Uh, I will have a lot more to say when we discuss reviews tomorrow. Um, I have a feeling I'm going to be in the minority just based off what uh, the buzz. So I, I'm really interested to, to hear what the critics feel uh, about this one. But anyway, on to Hump Day and on to another opening night, this time with Manhattan Theater Club's Broadway transfer of Inc., starring Bertie Carvel and Johnny Lee Miller. The show is by James Graham and is directed by Rupert Gould and had a very successful run in London. The play is currently on sale through June 16th at the Samuel J. Friedman Theater. And James, I went in only knowing the bare minimum about this one when I saw the first preview. Uh, I knew that Carvel played Rupert Murdoch and Miller played someone who edited one of his London tabloids. But I got to tell you, I think that this one is a lock for at least the best play nomination. Uh, we can talk more when the reviews come out, but because it's opening in the crowded part of the season, I don't think it's gotten nearly as much buzz as it would have if it had a little bit more room to breathe like the ferryman and mockingbird did i think this one is 
tremendous. I, I, I thought it was fantastic. So, well, I, uh, really, let me interrupt you for a second yeah, there. Go ahead. I, you know, the Manhattan Theater Club flies under the radar so often. They they mm-hmm. don't uh, do a ton of press and they don't do a ton of advertising. So it's easy for a sleeper to slip in like this. But uh, but uh, there has been a lot of uh, discussion about ink. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if what you're saying comes to, comes to fruition. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it is, I, th- I think I went in with one preconceived notion as to what the show is. And when I walked in and then I saw the set, it completely blew up. If you see the set, if you see pictures of the set, I don't think they've released pictures or video or anything yet. Uh, it is very much not what I expected. So uh, very much looking forward to seeing these reviews on Wednesday. But OK, moving on to Thursday and the Tony eligibility deadline. But before we get to the final opening of the 2018-2019 Broadway season, we have the nominations for the 64th annual Drama Desk Awards. Roma Torre and Frank DeLello will announce the nominations on New York One's Live at Noon sometime around 12.50 p.m. Eastern Time. They will be joined by the ceremony's host, Michael Yuri as well. Then on Thursday night, we have the opening of Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice at the Winter Garden Theater. The show features Alex Brightman, Sophia Ann Caruso, Carrie Butler, Rob McClure, Adam Danheiser, Leslie Kritzer, and more. It is directed by Alex Timbers and features a score by Eddie Perfect and a book by Scott Brown and Anthony King. James, the word on the street pretty much since it this show ended in D.C. with its out-of-town tryout has been that it was an absolute disaster and a travesty to all theater lovers and an affront to the good name of the Winter Garden Theater. But last week, I had two very different, non-connected theater professionals, one of whom I work with at the day job at Broadway World, and one of whom I might do a daily theater podcast with, but who is embargoed to share his thoughts for public consumption, uh, tell me that this was one of the most enjoyable nights at the theater of the whole season. And while it might not be high art, rumors of its awfulness might have been greatly exaggerated. I I don't think you can comment, but uh, I'm just throwing that out there that I have been led to believe that this is an abomination, but now I'm starting to hear maybe it's not. So this will be really interesting to close the season off uh, with these reviews coming up later this week. Uh, And real quick, finally, finally on Friday, the nominees for the Cheetah Rivera Awards will be announced. So busy, busy week, James. I have to say that my wife and I have been arguing about Beetlejuice for 24 hours now. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Anyway, we will uh, next week on this week on Broadway, and I'll talk about it uh, briefly on uh, today on Broadway. Um, But we'll figure that out next week after we're allowed to talk about it. What do we have in other news? Just two real quick things, James. Uh, on Friday, the Signature Theater announced that they had extended the world premiere off-Broadway production of Dave Malloy's Octet an extra oh. week. Uh, it will now play through June 16th, and I would not be surprised if it extends again. The show doesn't actually begin performances until April 30th. And <laughs> I don't I don't know what I thought this show was about. I don't think I really knew. <laughs> but here's the description of, of how they're describing it. Featuring a score for an a cappella chamber choir and an original libretto inspired by internet comment boards, scientific debates, religious texts, and Sufi poetry, Octet explores addiction and nihilism within the messy context of 21st century technology. Uh, This is also the first musical that Signature has produced since its founding in 1991. (laughs) This description 
makes me legitimately laugh, James. It is so bonkers that I have to think that this is like a groundbreaking, epic, incredibly inspired work, because otherwise the signature would have to go to Dave and say something along the lines of, hey, maybe let's take a step back from the scientific debates, Sufi poetry and nihilism in the first musical that we've ever produced. Right. Like if this is going to be the context for the first musical they've ever produced, it has to be incredible. So much so that, you know, that trip I might decide to take after the Tony Awards, James, oh, you're coming. I went ahead and bought a couple tickets to this because it extended into the week that I was going to be here. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, whatever. I'm just saying, I mean, how could I not? Like that description, like how could I not see that? Uh, But anyway, finally, James, I don't want to get super deep into this one other than to mention it. But last week, the New York Times published an article by Eugenia Belafonte entitled The Lehman Trilogy Criticizes Capitalism at $2,000 a seat. Now, this is the type of thing that we've actually talked a lot about, James, on this show over the years, and and I don't have a great answer to it, uh, but I think it's an interesting discussion and and one that maybe after the Tonys we can really get into, whether it's here on This Week on Broadway, a special episode, or maybe I'll do it on a Tell Me More, but uh, these two topics we've discussed um, probably bear some discussion after all of the openings and craziness of awards season are over. So, of course, Octet just uh, hit uh, the discussion as we hit 20 minutes. Uh, so, but I was going to ask you, uh, were you part of our interview with Dave Malloy? I can't remember if I, you were in. No, or not. I was not. No, I was not. Because we talked a little bit about Octet, uh, it was about a year ago and yeah, we, uh, we, we went into it a little bit. So yeah, I don't know what to expect, but Dave is, He's totally an outside-the-box thinker. And, you know, what a world we live in with Dave Malloy and Rachel Chavkin and just, Mm -hmm. like, these folks who are just incredible. Can we have more more works by them? Like, those types of people. I I, I don't want to get into this discussion, but, like, someone said – someone asked me if, like – Maybe this is the end of movie music movies being adapted for musicals. And I said, no, that's it's never that's never going to end. That's not going away. But what I'm hoping is that we don't just decide, hey, let's do a movie to musical adaptation and let's just get either a um, a pop or rock music person to write the score who has no experience with writing dramatic music. Or let's get somebody who's just written a bunch of these already and uh, they are going to sound the exact same. Let's stop doing that and let's get different creators, different writers, different directors, different choreographers to to, to do things. Because those are the shows that actually end up being successful on Broadway and yet we don't get enough of them. So anyway, I'm throwing down my handkerchief uh, or tissue as I say this, but uh, that's just my, my riff as we get through the end of this season. All right, Matt. Why don't you get us out of here? That wasn't too weird for the 20-minute mark. But anyway, thanks for listening to Today on Broadway. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Broadway Radio. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at BWWMatt. And my name is uh, my name is James Reno from BroadwayRadio.com and BroadwayStars.com. Thanks for kicking off your week with us. Uh, Matt and I haven't talked about our schedule yet, so I'm not sure when no, we will be no coming idea. out this week. But, um, you know, I screwed up on the whole Hadestown thing again in Toronto. I, I, it, it, yeah, you were was, all over that it one. It was Edmonton, Alberta. It wasn't Toronto. But 
and the and the live album was from the New York Theater Workshop, not from Canada. Yeah, so, so we have to clean that all up next week, and uh, we'll talk to you then. 